0: Turn with me this evening to Job chapter 1, the Old Testament scriptures, Job chapter 1. Often on the Sunday before, or the Sunday night before Thanksgiving, I like to have a time of thanksgiving and praise. Obviously, with our service format that we've been following uh, these several months, we'll have to do that a little differently. But I do want to think about the subject of thanksgiving and how we can thank God appropriately as we head into this week. We'll be praying for all of you, whatever you find yourself doing. Of course, we're away the next Sunday, so we'll look forward to seeing you the following Sunday there in December. And we'll be praying for all of you. But I want to look at Job 1, and I am going to read this opening chapter, and then we'll consider... Some thoughts from God's word on giving thanks in all sorts of things. So Job 1, let's hear the word of the Lord. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Joe would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hand, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand, and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, then. Everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep of the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I, and the only one who has escaped, to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. They collapse on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Amen. We'll end our reading there for God's help together, Father in heaven, do you give us an understanding of your word tonight and the right frame of mind for being thankful in the days ahead and recognizing you as the giver of all good things and even the one who sends hard times. All of life is in your hand, so make us thankful as we recognize your kind provision and your perfect control of all things. Give us understanding of your word, and may you be glorified here in the reading and preaching of the scriptures. And Bless those who cannot be with us this evening, as the all pray, be with our church members, and bless them and care for them, and take care of us through these days, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to open tonight by summarizing a short story I read recently. This is from the uh, collection of stories I've mentioned a few times by Flannery O'Connor. And the name of this story is called The Turkey, which makes the title quite appropriate for this time of year. But the story follows a young man named Roller, a young boy. And he encounters a wounded turkey while playing in the woods. And he wants to catch this turkey in order to impress his family. You see, he's a younger sibling. His family thinks he's strange. At night, he can overhear his... Parents analyzing him, they think he's asleep and they say things in the other room like, why does a kid always play by himself? How am I to know? He's just unusual, snaps his mother, weary in her defense. And so you can imagine Roller's excitement as he encounters this turkey and he thinks, you know, I'm going to bring this bird home and I'm really going to show my quality to my family. his 11 years old, younger sibling, what an opportunity to impress but his excitement wanes, because he begins to chase the turkey, and then it'll be right within his hands, and then the turkey will elude him. And he chases it, and he runs, and he chases it, and finally, right when he's going to get the turkey, he runs into a low-hanging limb on a tree, and he collapses, and the turkey gets away. It almost makes you think of the Absalom story from the Old Testament. And when he hits the ground, and the turkey escapes he begins to question, out, out of the blue, no mention of God yet in the stories, out of the blue when he hits the ground. He begins to question God's goodness. And he wonders, why did God make me chase that wild turkey all afternoon for nothing? I mean, why did God even show me that turkey if he was just going to have me do a lot of work and then take it away from him? And as he starts thinking, he thoughts, he feels bad. I should think about God like this. But at the same time, he says, well, but that's what I think. And the more he thinks this way, the further he spirals down in these thoughts. And as he walks home, he begins to imagine, you know, maybe I'll become a very bad boy. Maybe I'll do shocking things like cursing in front of my grandmother and seeing how I shock her with my uh, new bad behavior. And he's going in all these directions about what he might do. He begins to blaspheme God. And when he thinks to himself, well, you know, if I become a bad boy, like my older brother who's doing things, and and if I turn out really bad, I, I might go to hell. And then he just starts laughing at the idea of hell. And he continues in this rebellious way of thinking, but all of a sudden his rebellious thoughts, they come to a grinding halt because he stumbles upon the turkey again. But this time, the turkey is dead. It died from all the chasing. It had already been wounded. Someone had shot it. And after a chased it for all that time, it eventually died. And so he sees this good-sized turkey. He says, this is a 10-pound turkey. And he wonders, maybe God sent this turkey to me as a gift. So he picks it up, and he slings it over his shoulder. And he thinks, Man, maybe this turkey will bring joy to my family. Maybe this turkey will stop my parents' From fighting. I'm going to bring this turkey home. We're all going to gather around. We're just going to give thanks to God. And so now he's going through town and his spirits are lifted and he's thinking, you know, I I should serve God with my life. He's so good. Maybe I'll become a preacher. And as he's going through town, everybody's just talking about how great his turkey looks. And he thinks, now I've got this last dime in my pocket. You know, I want to give this to a beggar. God, send me a beggar that I can give this dime to and just do all these good things. For you. And as he's looking around for a beggar, what we might think of as a homeless person, a group of boys begin to follow him. Well, as the story wraps up, he finally encounters the homeless person. It's right before he gets home, but it's actually a really well known beggar in town, an old lady that everybody thinks is secretly rich because she always keeps all the donations that people give her. And so Roller thinks he's upset because of all the needy people to encounter. I would get this woman who might be secretly rich. but He gives her the money all of a sudden, and he turns to go to home, and this group of boys call out to him. They say, hey, let us see this turkey. And he turns around, and he shows them the turkey, and one of them spits on the ground, and they look at the turkey, and all of a sudden, they rob him of his turkey. And they turn and run away. And the story ends as he's just stunned. He's standing there for a minute, and he begins to run quickly towards home. It's almost dark. And the story concludes with this line. He ran faster and faster. And as he turned up the road to his house, his heart was running as fast as his legs. And he was certain that something awful was tearing behind him. And something awful is capitalized in the text as if something awful, a person or a thing, was after him. Something awful was tearing behind him with its arms rigid and its fingers ready to clutch. Now, Flannery O'Connor wrote from a Christian worldview. She was herself a Christian by profession, a Catholic lady, so a Christian broadly conceived, but still writing from that basic Christian worldview. And she often explores themes of sin, self righteousness, and the pursuit of grace. So what is she after in this story? Well, Drew Williams, who's a conservative Anglican, he wrote a short essay analyzing the story, and he titled it this way, The God Who Giveth and Taketh Away Turkeys." And listen to this paragraph. He says, Do we all stand a little exposed in this eccentric short story? Have we, like Roller, constructed a God Who benevolently giveth turkeys, and then capriciously taketh them away. Have we made the presence or absence of the turkeys of health, wealth, inner peace, success, and joy a barometer of how God feels about us on a given day? When God giveth turkeys, it signals his interest and pleasure in. We feel close to God, and we might even feel spurred to generosity when God taketh away our turkeys. We imagine his displeasure and his rejection of us. We feel cast off by God. We conclude that we were right after all in thinking that God is fickle and unpredictable. He remembers our past sins and retaliates by snatching our turkeys. Well, you can see how Williams has connected O'Connor's story to the book of Job. That's why I read from Job this evening. I got the idea of connecting it that way from the essay. And what Job shows us, really, is the paradigm for how we should approach both the good and the bad things of life. You see, Roller in that story based his whole outlook on God on his circumstances— and when he ends up losing the turkey in the end, the something awful that's chasing after him, I take it almost as the devil. I think of the, the story of Cain and Abel, remember, sins crouching there at the door. This something awful wants to get him and convince him, you can't trust God, he's not good, if things go bad, he's not real. But what the Bible, that, the outlook the Bible gives us is that God is good no matter what. And should be praised. And thanks. And and Job has really just become the textbook example of that. So let me review just for a moment what chapter 1 tells us about Job. We read of his character in verse 1 that he was blameless and upright, he feared God and shunned evil. So that's how the story leads. That's what matters about Job more than anything else. We're going to read in a minute that he has possessions. But what makes him different from others with possessions is that he is blameless and upright. He fears God. He shuns evil. Now, what kind of possessions did he have? Verse 3, he was greatest among all the people. Of the East, and the verses list out his thousands of possessions. Now now we're not in that world, so we can read that and say that sounds like a lot, but this man would have been the wealthiest man in his area. That's why verse 3 says, greatest among all the people of the East. This is the Jeff Bezos of his day. He's got the money in that area, and everybody knows it. And not only does he have all these possessions, he's got a family. He's said he's got the sons and the daughters there, and they get together from time to time, and he cares about their holiness, offers these sacrifices lest they sin against God. But because of all these blessings, he has all these good things from the hand of God, this charge arises from the devil. Once again, verses 9 to 11, this Job? Fear God for nothing, Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him in his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out in your hands, strike everything he has. And he will surely curse you to your face. In other words, God, Job only serves you because you give him things. There's the turkeys again. You've given this Job a lot of turkeys. But you take all those turkeys away, and Job will curse you. To your face. And so God allows Satan to ruin Job. And Job loses his possessions. Job loses his family. Try to enter into his world there. It would almost crush us in the tragedy. Not just to lose one child, but ten in one day. After all the other bad news that he's gotten. But despite the fact that he loses those things, he loses everything he's gotten in possessions of he does not lose his piety. Verses 20 to 22. At this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. He doesn't lose his gratitude his Praise, adoration, and his worship of God. He's not like Roller, so to speak, in the O'Connor story. And by the way, when we go into chapter 2 and Job loses his health, he responds the same way. Chapter 2, verse 10 Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now, I do need to point out, in order to be fair to the whole book of Job, I think we do sometimes read the two chapters and forget about everything else that comes afterward. It's harder to read. It's it's in poetry. It's a different form. But this is the last time in chapter 2 that such a statement will be said about Job, i.e. that he did not sin in what he said. And when you get to the end of Job, God will correct Job because Job ends up charging God with unfairness. He says, God, if you don't have the right to do this to me, when I have not done wrong. So there is an immaturity about Job that gets exposed throughout the book. But I think the main point still stands. Because there's a difference between an immaturity in one's faith. Job needed to be more mature and he viewed God's rights as creator. God can do whatever he wants and always be in the right. Job kind of got away from that as the dialogue progresses. But that immaturity is a little different from the rebellion of cursing God and then of forsaking him when he does not do what we want, of bargaining with God, of saying, I will obey you if you give me those things. And by the way, God himself affirmed the integrity of Job at the very beginning of the book and later rebuked his friend. So I think the main point still stands that Job is this example of giving thanks to God and accepting his control, even when things do not go our way. This year has proven to be a year of challenge. Many normal routines of life have been interrupted. Many have suffered losses. Others have been frustrated by local or national events. And that's true whatever side you sit of those events. There's been frustration. There's been aggravation. Even if there's a resistance to the interpretation of some of these things, the disruption's still there. No one can escape it. And I think with that going on, and and, and then with Thanksgiving coming up this week, and maybe even then your Thanksgiving plans have been interrupted, We're praying for someone who just got news uh, of a positive uh, diagnosis. How is that going to affect things uh, this coming week? So things are being interrupted. Maybe they'll be interrupted more. And maybe we're tempted to get to this day this year and say, well, you know, what what do we have to give thanks for? And this is where I would challenge us tonight as a church, as individuals, as, as families. You know, this may be the year where we have to actually consciously think about what am I going to give thanks for and be intentional to identify those things and to give thanks for them. It might not hurt to, to take time this week. Write out, here are some things I'm thankful for. Share them with your family or friends or others. And then give thanks to God for those things, for what He's done for you, maybe even things that he has done this year. Good that has perhaps come out of these hard times. And as you do that, you could reflect then on your view of God. What do I think about him? Is God still good even after the events of this year? Are we tempted like rollers to praise God only when things go well and then to curse him when things don't go well? Now, maybe you're going to attempt to do that, and you're even thinking now, okay, look, I, I want to do that. I want to do it. But it's a struggle. I'm having a hard time thanking or praising God. How can I move from this place of struggle to a confident trust in God and the ability to thank and praise Him? Or, or just what's some direction you could give me on what I can be thankful for? Let me highlight two areas in the time that we have left this evening. One area in which we can receive direction on how we can thank God or what can we thank Him for. Let me take this from Martin Luther and his explanation of the First Commandment. Uh, Most people know the First Commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now listen to how Luther explains the First Commandment in the Lutheran larger catechism. He says, here's the basic meaning of the commandment. You shall have and worship me alone as thy God. Seems pretty simple. That's on the surface of it. But then Luther probes deeper, and he asks a follow-up question. What does it mean to have a God? Or, what is God? And listen to his answer. This will bless you. Challenge you and bless you. He says, a God means that from which we are to expect all good. And to which we are to take refuge in all distress. So that to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe Him from the whole heart. As I have often said, the confidence and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. In other words, how do you know what your God is? You don't just name Him as your God, you trust Him as your God. Your heart is going to trust something. Everyone has faith. But what you trust determines whether you have a God or an idol. Luther goes on, If your faith and trust be right, then is your God also true. And on the other hand, if your trust be false and wrong, then you have not the your God. For these two belong together, faith and God. That now I say upon which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your God. You can know your God based on what you trust, what you delight in uh, I was told the story, I may have told this before, but it was my former pastor, and he was with his dad. And they either came up on a car accident where a BMW had been hit, or they might have been the ones that actually rear-ended the BMW. But they got out to try to help. And when the lady who was driving the BMW got out, she looked at her car, and she said, quite frankly, I'm going to give the full phrase, she said, Oh my God. And she said, said, And the pastor's like, ma'am, are you okay? And she just kept saying it over and over again. Oh my, fill in the blank. And finally the dad said, ma'am, we can get your God fixed. Are you okay? You know, and now (laughs) if he's the one who actually re-ended her, I don't know how well that came across. But you get the point. Uh, She was just so torn up over this car. Maybe it was a reflection of something in her heart that is not good. And so Luther finishes, Therefore, it is the intent of this commandment to require true faith and trust of the heart, which settles upon the only true God and clings to Him alone. That is as much as to say, See to it that you let me alone be your God and never seek another. Whatever you lack of good things, expect it of me and look to me for it. And whenever you suffer misfortune and distress, creep and cling to me, I, yes, I will give you enough and help you out of every need, only let not your heart cleave to or rest in any other. Hard times like this year tend to reveal what we really trust, what really brings us joy. And you know what? If you find, by the way, that you are trusting in God alone, then those trials have that good effect. Some people find that. They go through hard times, their faith is deepened. It brings out how good and sufficient God is. Don't be afraid to to, to pour that out to God as you learn that and to let others see it if need be. Many saints confess to learning just how good God is when they go through a hard time. But if we're not trusting God, then trials tend to knock us off our feet. They'll stun us. They'll reveal all sorts of wickedness inside of us. But you know what? If you see that, and you confess it, and you seek the Lord, then it's good too, because the cure is good. Here's the second thing that will draw us to God, I think that will encourage our hearts to thankfulness, It's very simple. It's the love of God. The love of God, which cannot be affected by any circumstance. Romans 8 reads, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sore? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you want to know if God loves you? Then consider how He treated you in Christ. Did God give His Son for you while you were still a sinner? Yes. Did God raise Christ from the dead when He paid for your sins? Yes. And if God did not ultimately forsake Him, And if God gave him to you when you were still a sinner, then don't let your circumstances tell you whether or not God loves you. Christ has settled that question. Williams, I referred to him earlier, he concludes his essay on the turkeys this way. The Apostle John wrote, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. And he asked, What would our lives look like if our identity truly rested upon God's relentless, tender, compassionate love for us? What if we believed that nothing could separate us from the love of God? Brennan Manning writes, God created us for union with himself. This is the original purpose of our lives. And as God is defined as love, living in awareness of our belovedness, is the axis around which our lives were designed to revolve? Be Being the beloved is our identity, the core of our existence. It is the name by which God knows us and the way he relates to us. One last quote. Kevin Bowder wrote this essay this week, and it was the same topic as I had already prepared here. Can we give thanks? Tells a wonderful story of times in his life when... Uh, They were without many things. But he concludes it this way. Gratitude is not a function of how much we have been given. It is a function of how much we pay attention, not only to God's gifts, but especially to Him as one who gives graciously, kindly, and wisely. We do not become thankful because we receive, but because we acknowledge having received. And I will leave you with that thought tonight, church. Just spend some time this week, leading up to Thursday and beyond, meditating on God's love for you. Meditating on all that God has given us. What can we be thankful for? I think when we take the time to think and look, we'll find a lot. And then we'll be able to fulfill 1 Thessalonians 5.18 where God tells us, give thanks in all circumstances. That's right.